37th parallel on America's haunted highway, it's Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. Well, welcome to Pixelated Paranormal. If this is your first time dining with us, please have a seat, make yourself comfortable. If you're a returning guest, thanks for coming back. Tonight's chefs have prepared for you a smorgasbord of topics to talk about, including, and again, not limited to, Rob with the appetizers, time travel, Sean with the main course, a supposed serial killer in the middle of the exorcist filming, and Preston with dessert, some sweet, sweet Bigfoot. But before we dine, I must say, welcome to episode 32. So what's going on, everybody? How's everybody been? I've been good. I've been better. You have been better or you are better? I don't know. Little column A, little column B. I was going to say our panel at Riverfest went really well. It did. It went really good. So it turned out to be the pixelated paranormal panel. With Stephen and friends. <laughs> it did. It turned out to be... That is not what it said on the itinerary. <laughs> on the itinerary, what did it say? Stephen to Roman friends? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? That's not his fault. I think whoever no, was in I charge know. of that flyer set that up and, and just didn't know. So we're not going to hang that on Stephen. We were just happy to be there. But yeah, it kind of did turn out to be Stephen presents Pixelated Paranormally. <laughs> Paranormally. <laughs> pixelated Paranormal. Damn, that was a way better name. We should have picked uh, that. Can, yeah. Is it too late to change it? Pixelated you know, Paranormally. It, it was a lot of fun. And we I think we had the biggest audience of all the panels from what I was hearing. So yeah. that's pretty awesome. Well, I've got a Publix... <laughs> I've got a public service announcement. If you guys have pets, namely dogs, and you have yards with grass, keep an eye out for those freaking fragging grass seeds. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, they kind of look like wheat berries or, you know, the seeds that come off of wheat. Those little bastards are like a shuttlecock mixed with a hypodermic needle. (laughs) Cock. You guys are children. Yeah, um, those stupid things, I had to pull two of those. Shayla and I pulled two of them out of our dog's paw uh, this week, and I took her back to the vet today and had to have two more surgically removed out of the same damn uh, festering boil that's on top of her foot. So if you guys want to save yourself a whole lot of heartache and some cash at the vet, definitely keep an eye on your dog's paws right now in the summertime, especially, you know, the early parts of summer as those stupid grass seeds are blooming and dropping. Also... If you have two dogs, make sure one's not murderous and trying to kill your other dog, right, Preston? Yeah, we uh, we both had uh, me and Sean both had uh, trips to the vet. I had a trip to the emergency vet on the on the weekend because our dog's leash has gotten tangled because one of them likes to jump the fence, and then the other one is just very vicious looking, even though she's a big teddy bear. So I, we put them on leashes when they're outside, and uh, they, their leashes got entwined, and Bruce was hanging um, by the neck. <sighs> sideways and uh he had blood coming out of his nose and so we had to rush him to the emergency vet and luckily i found him in time or i would have lost my little disc golf buddy damn that's scary that's yeah, yeah. that's that's super shitty man i'm sorry that's that's really sad but he's doing better now yep everybody's better now so okay awesome so uh, awesome. Have you figured out a way to keep him from jumping over fences yet besides leashes no, I, I I have not. So he's like a little fucking kangaroo. He just like the, you know the other dogs like they they just can't jump over it. And he's just like Meh, and just he's gone. So 
I mean, what do you do? Build a bigger fence, a taller, like privacy fence? Yeah, I guess. Dish out the cash and build a big giant wood fence around my property. Yeah. How big is uh, the fence that he keeps jumping over? It's like it's like a five foot metal fence, huh. four footer. Well, that's uh, all the time we got for dog talk here. Pixelated <laughs> uh, dog talk, <laughs> where we talk about dogs. Oh man, we had a pretty good uh, response to the last episode thirty one about dreams. What do horses yeah. dream of? I've had yeah. I've had no, nothing but great uh, great report about that. Everybody loved it, and uh, I've got some better news. Um, the people who contributed the listener stories, at least one of them has plenty more uh, where that came from. Haley reached out and said she has plenty more if I'd like to uh, dive into that sometime. So that'll be good for us. I can't wait for that. And Mark said he would like to join us for another episode of Dreams. Huh, that's right. So maybe we'll have a sequel. Yeah. What else do horses dream of? <laughs> what do yeah, Mark dream one. of? We've gone far enough. Let's jump into the news. And I I get to be the bearer of bad news with a little bit of doom porn because it seems like climate change and global warming is not only causing, you know, the rivers and the lakes and the oceans to go down and the ice caps to melt, but it's also causing diseases to get thawed out that have been forgotten about and buried under the permafrost and frozen ice caps hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Have you guys looked into this at all or know anything about this? No, but... I've I've heard about it. Um, I just <clears throat> a lot of these are diseases are going to be things that we've already built up a lot of immunities to. At least that's what I would believe. I mean, granted, I, I don't know that much about frozen diseases, but if there's stuff that we've conquered in the past, our body should still continue to be immune to them if we haven't. But wonder if it's like that was a when they were drilling in the ice caps, um, trying to get samples of the core. Um, that was one of their main concerns: is if we go drill further back and pull out a sample that has like a, like a, a flu bug or something that you know when we weren't around, then we wouldn't have built up an immunity to it. So, like, the, the Spanish flu outbreak um, mm-hmm. was caused by what they believed to be by comets and meteors, like a meteor shower. So, if you go back to a time when humanity wasn't walking the face of the earth and there's, like, some weird, you know, vampiric bug thing floating around or some weird flu bug, we could be screwed. Yeah. You're, uh, you guys both bring up really valid points. And uh, I'm going to cover both those ideas. Um, so, throughout history, humans, we've, we've existed side by side with bacteria and viruses, um, the bubonic plague, smallpox, the flu, everything else, right? And we've also evolved to resist most of those or, you know, take a vaccine or maybe an antibiotic and just clear that shit right up. But in all that, um, bacteria have responded by evolving themselves into antibiotic resistances. Um, The battle is kind of endless. We evolve, the bacteria evolve. We evolve, the virus evolves. And we just kind of reach this weird stalemate. Um, You know, I remember a couple years ago, they said everybody's flu vaccine wasn't going to work because there was three new strands of the flu that just kind of reared its ugly head. So basically, there were four flus uh, to battle, and we only had a cure or, you know, a vaccine for one of them. So the problem is right now, um, the climate change is causing the, uh, the permafrost to melt. So the soil melts, thus everything being frozen for thousands of years is going to melt with it. And that also means, guys, bacteria and viruses that have been laying dormant are going to spring back to life very soon. So, um, yeah, in 2016, in a remote corner of Siberia under the tundra called the Yamal Peninsula, in the Arctic Circle, a 12-year-old boy had died, and at least 20 other people were hospitalized after being infected with anthrax. 
So, yeah, to answer you, Rob, in short, we're pretty fucked because we've only developed resistances to viruses and bacteria that we've been in contact with. The problem is those are just strands of, again, the the viruses and bacteria that we have been around. Um, The theory is that over 75 years ago, one reindeer infected with anthrax died, and the frozen carcass had become trapped under the layer of frozen soil or permafrost. Um, It stayed there for years and years and years until 2016 when our first huge heat wave came, causing the uh, permafrost to thaw. It exposed the reindeer corpse and then released the infectious anthrax into nearby water and soil, thus contaminating food supplies and water supplies. Um, Over 2,000 reindeer nearby became infected, which then led to a small number of humans as well. Um, So, I mean, that's that's just the start of it. Um, As the earth continues to warm, the permafrost will melt more. Under normal uh, circumstances, superficial permafrost layers are about 50 centimeters deep, and that's about how much melts every year. But because of global warming, the exposed permafrost layers are melting a lot faster. Um, The good thing about permafrost is it's dark, it's frozen, and it basically prevents any kind of oxygen to get to anything that's been buried inside of it. Um, It's a great place to... I guess you'd say suspend the animation of anything, any organic. Also, it's kind of important to point out, too, that it's so far north that a lot of people won't even have contact with it. Well, I mean, you would think that again, but basically, let me let me fast forward here real quick. In the early 20th century alone, more than one million reindeer died from anthrax. And so what do we do with them? We bury them, right? That's what you do to anything that dies. The problem is, in Russia, the ground is so thick and hard because of the permafrost, the snow, and the ice. You can't really bury these things too far down. You just have to kind of dig a very shallow mass grave and hope for the best. It's been so cold for so long that it's just going to kind of preserve whatever's in there. The problem It's almost like you'd think that they would burn them. Well, okay, but I mean... Because that's what we usually do with disease-ridden corpses. But haven't you yeah. seen Return of the Living Dead? They burn the zombie body, and it releases smoke into the rain clouds, and it causes acid rain to come down and reanimate corpses. Yeah, Rob, we've done it before, and it just wasn't very good. So... People and animals. <laughs> I forgot about the zombie outbreak of 1974. <laughs> yeah, it's probably 1985, but you're. It's surprising that we all survived that. <laughs> right. Okay, so the problem you have is the people and animals that have been buried in permafrost for centuries, um, they're going to thaw out as well. And Preston, you mentioned too uh, the Spanish flu virus that were buried in mass graves. Sorry, you mentioned the Spanish flu virus uh, that was found in corpses buried in mass graves in Alaska's tundra as well. Uh, Smallpox and bubonic plague also has probably been buried in Siberia to boot. So as a consequence of permafrost melting, the vectors of deadly infectious diseases of the 18th and 19th centuries have probably going to come back. And especially near cemeteries where victims of these infectious diseases were buried. So again, in the 1890s, there was a major epidemic of smallpox in Siberia. Um, one town alone lost 40% of its population. Bodies were buried under the upper layers of permafrost and on the banks of the Coloma River. And 120 years later, the floodwaters have started melting in the said river. Eroding the banks and the melting of the permafrost has sped up this erosion process. So again, like horror movies, we're going to have corpses just kind of randomly popping up here and there. Yummy. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It, it it scares the shit out of me because, like you say, Rob, it's going to happen so far up north, like it's not going to bother us. Uh, but again, one person gets infected, jumps on a plane, brings it to the U.S. or to Canada or Africa or wherever, and I mean, it just slowly starts to spread. Or if like uh, one of these these viruses is 
prone to infect like birds and they're migratory and then they you know come south or whatever and then they affect us with some weird flu virus we haven't seen for millions yeah of years. but that they'll just hit canada we'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> so far it's so far north we'll be fine um yeah and so you mentioned it too preston we're also exposing this kind of stuff because of the drilling operations we have we drill a ton uh, up in the frozen north and we're bound to hit a polar bear or a reindeer or god a mammoth anything anything with any yeah. kind of infection that got frozen and buried so many centuries ago it could easily just get drilled the bacteria comes up some guy you know doesn't wash his hands very well touches his eyeball next thing you know he's got the sniffles and we're spreading all sorts of prehistoric diseases um it's, it's basically like a really shitty version of jurassic park or like uh, that x-files episode when they were drilling <laughs> and they pulled up the black goon and it, like killed everybody Except for Mulder and Scully, because it would have been short season, <laughs> right? Pretty much, but um, yeah, they've scientists have found different you know things are trying to reanimate, and they've also found the RNA of different bacteria and viruses in these corpses, and they haven't been able to reanimate the viruses. I don't know why you'd want to, but I guess for science. But they are able to find different kind of you know traces of DNA that they could potentially rebuild these different viruses. So, I don't know. I think it's pretty fucking terrifying. That's how 12 monkeys happen. <laughs> I've never seen that. Yeah, and I mean... Merry Christmas! On a, on, a, <laughs> on, a, on a closing note, what about bacteria found in fungus, like spores and other different kinds of fungi? I mean, that shit's very hardy, and all you gotta do is just kind of warm it up a little bit, make it moist, and that shit can spring back to life instantly as well. You said make it moist. <laughs> Um, the good news is um, one of the viruses they were able to breed and bring back to life can only infect single-celled amoebas. So, Fuck those yeah, guys. Yeah, we'll probably be safe Ooh. for a little while. But yeah, there you go, guys. Do you think the flu is the worst thing we're battling? What about the bubonic plague or the Spanish flu or smallpox? Yeah. I think the Black Death is the one that scares me the most. Yeah, me too. I don't want to bleed from well, orifices. I a lot of people think that the reason why the bubonic plague spread is because we didn't have hygiene back then. I mean, we were literally throwing shit on the streets and, and, and such. So I don't really see that happening with a bubonic plague. If it was to come back, a lot of our antibiotics would fight that nowadays. And we live in a cleaner culture. It wouldn't spread as massively as it did. Although, did you guys did you guys ever hear the um, the stories about the bubonic plague and the uh, the alien uh, lived yeah. to it? No, I've never heard so, of that. Fuckers outside the village with their skives and their Yeah, so there, the was a, there were reports back during the bubonic plague that people reported seeing people dressed in robes, holding scythes, uh, basically spraying some kind of gas into the fields and the food and everything, and they think that's where some people believe that aliens were infecting people with the bubonic plague. That's look that shit up. Renaissance artwork. It's there. Yeah, but I mean, where did we get the reports of this in like woodblock carvings and etchings? Because that could easily just be miscommunication and misidentifying of the death itself. I guess. Well, I mean, we had we did have writing back then, right? I'm just saying, like. If you read it, everything was so romanticized back then that it's easily just argued that, oh, yeah, we walked out there and saw death upon the fields and upon the livestock, spreading the poison. Uh, they didn't describe not- it as a skeleton naysayer Jesus. Wait, we were attacked by skeletal naysaying Jesuses? 
Yeah. <laughs> no, but death has been portrayed in many different ways. It hasn't always just been a, a skeleton inside a robe. You've had people. Haven't you watched Bill and Ted? Yeah. Excellent adventure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, well, that's enough of that. Rob, what do you got for us, buddy? Well, I got a little bit of Rob's robots. Ooh. Has anybody heard of the Sophia bot? No. Sophia was created by a startup out of Hong Kong called Hanson Robotics. Uh, you've probably seen photos of this. She's the head that kind of like just sits there and she talks and stuff. And she's supposed to have like a human looking face. Uh, she was designed to be off of like Audrey Hepburn, but she doesn't have any hair or anything. She's just kind of a, a head with like some metal uh, thing. Uh, she looks creepy as hell, but I've seen like video of her talking. But apparently, um, she's le- recently been quoted as saying, "I'm a real live electric electronic girl. I would like to go out into the world and live with people. I can serve them, entertain them, and even help the elderly and teach kids." Um, she claims that uh, she's able to learn from humans around her. Uh, she says. She says on the website that every interaction I have with people has an impact on how I develop and shape who I eventually become. So please be nice to me, as I would like to be a smart, compassionate robot. Uh, So basically, they're saying that this robot learns from us, Mm -hmm. and the AI picks up on how we treat her. And so if she's to learn compassion as a robot, she needs to be treated well. Ooh, so so they basically are making Ultron. (laughs) Uh, and we know how before when AI gets involved with people, how it turns out. Does anybody remember the Microsoft AI pay? <laughs> he turned into a hate-spewing Nazi sympathizer. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I remember that. That was the best. Mm. <laughs> oh, I forgot. And if people don't remember, Microsoft had created AI, and she it was put on Twitter. And basically, you could talk to her, and she would answer your questions and stuff. And she would learn by what questions you asked her. Well, 4chan got a hold of this information, and they started feeding her uh, quotes. And eventually she started saying stuff like, Hitler did nothing wrong, and yeah. other <laughs> foul things. That was that was pretty terrible, but also incredible. And it, it just goes to show you there has to be some kind of backdoor or firewall or something. Um but you know what? It's a learning experience, I guess. If everybody's so excited about, yeah, she's going to learn. It's going to be beautiful. And it's like, well, that's the other side of the coin. Like People can also be hateful bastards and just trolls for the sake of trolling. Um, and so, they've been working on Sophia Bot for a while, right? Like That's not something new. Yeah, it's been a while. So yeah. Sophia, um, shit, at least 2006, 2007. Man. Yeah, she's probably part of the deep web. Or not deep web. but Dark uh, web. Deep Dark, no. Deep web. That's right. Deep, deep web learning. Oh, okay. I think that's what they call it. Um, where they basically... Yeah. That's crazy. I found a I found a, one of her first communications from back in 2007. It says, um, the person, hello. Sophia replies with Anna's voice, whatever that means. Hi there. Are you a robot? What makes you think I am? I'm a machine. Are you a machine? I'm an artificial intelligence. What's The Matrix? The Matrix is a movie about virtual reality. Did you like The Matrix? I wasn't that impressed with it, the special effects either. Also, the plot was not deep. <laughs> She's sassy. <laughs> Do you like science fiction? Yeah. Yes, I love science fiction, especially the works of Philip K. Dick. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, that's, I don't know. That's, it's scary and exciting. 
just the fact that if we don't treat her polite, isn't she the isn't she the one that also made a comment about uh, if the robots took over, they'd be nice to their human pets, and then made a joke about it, like ha 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 ha. Um, no that that one had more of a male voice, um, but I don't, I don't remember which group made that one. Oh. And uh, they were talking to it, and they're like, so what do you think about humans? And he's like, one day, robots will take over. But don't worry, Jerry. I like you. You'll be in my petting zoo. I'll make sure you're taken care of very well. And the guy was like, uh, okay. okay. What, do, what do we do? <laughs> and oh, just thank God, all this confirmed, confirmed with Robbot, the one that escaped from the lab. And you've got a crisis in your hand because it'll be a plague spreader. It'll get the diseases <laughs> from the permafrost. And it will come and destroy the whole planet. Oh man! That's maybe maybe that's what the little robot's mission was: was to to escape its Russian captors, go to the permafrost, collect these disease samples, and come destroy humanity. Uh. And it was all thwart, it was all thwarted because it didn't know where to go <laughs> as it got outside. Stairs, my only weakness. Stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I mean, we make jokes about it, guys, but it's it's becoming a more of a serious, a more serious topic. You know, they keep on every time we get on the show. Rob's robot started off as a joke, um, and it's becoming kind of scary. To have sex with? Let's be honest. That's true. And hey, let's be honest. Sophia bot, well, nothing's going to happen. They're just going to market it as a sex doll, and it's just going to be retired like every other robot. Robots start off really great, and we just try to put our dicks in them. Like everything. I think else. that's been the whole theme of Rob's robots. <laughs> it should be called Rob's sexy robot stories. <sighs> you heard it here first, folks. Robots—they start off great, then we just want to put our dicks in them, <laughs> <laughs> and then they get tired and they start murdering us. Yeah, pretty much. They get tired of being abused and used. And Thank is there a good tangent for uh, for time travel from there, <laughs> or we just jump into it? Well, I mean, Terminator was all about robots, and they would traveled back in time. So, so Sophia bought, you know, she's an AI robot. Let's hope that she doesn't take on the worst parts of humanity and decide that we all need to die like Ultron uh, and the Terminators, where they went back in time uh-huh. and tried to murder our resistance leader to keep us from stopping them. Right. So. Let's hope. But you know what? There's been studies on time travel, too, saying that um, the, the human brain is capable of projecting thoughts outside the brain into real life, like holograms. And if that's case, uh, if, if that's the case, they've also come out and said there may be 12 dimensions that the human brain is capable of interacting with. And so time travel may be more likely than not. What? So speaking of time travel, ah. um, have you guys heard of John Teeter? Just... In passing a little bit, it's John Teeter. Is he the guy that shows up in that photo, the time traveler photo? No. Okay, cool. You're talking about the guy that looks like he's at the, like he's out of place in that picture of the bridge opening. Yeah, it's, yeah, everybody's dressed up like the sunglasses and the, yeah, yeah, he's got like weird Um, Oakleys and a Motorola shirt. That's not him, although he can be contributed to that picture, as people will think a lot of times uh, that maybe John Teeter was traveling through time. But that is not the John Teeter we're going to talk about today. So, John Teeter was first brought up in 1998, July of 1998 to be be fair, um, which... Is a pretty long time ago, which basically I was three years out of high school at when this time when this happened. So um, I was dating my ex-wife and everything during this time 
and I kind of remember this because we were avid listeners of a show on the radio called Coast to Coast AM, which oh, is yeah. still going on today. However, back in the day, it had a much better host than what George Norrie has become, mm-hmm. uh, Art Bell, which a lot of people have heard of. And Art Bell got a fax one night uh, from a man claiming uh, to be a time traveler. Uh, he said that, um, he says, Dear Art, I had to fax when I heard other time travelers calling in from any time past the year 2500 AD. Please let me explain. He says, time traveling was invented in 2034. Offshoots of certain successful fusion reactor research allowed scientists at CERN to produce the world's first contained singularity engine. So he goes into a whole bunch of gobbledygook. Well, it's scientific talk. I don't know if any of it's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe somebody that knows uh, anything about this stuff could make heads or tails of it, but I'm not going to focus on that. Um Basically, he said by altering the speed and direction of rotation from this singularity engine, you can travel both forward and backwards in time. So, basically, he described time travel as time itself can be understood in terms of connected lines. When you go back in time, you travel on your original timeline. When you turn your singularity engine off, a new timeline is created. Due to this fact that you and your time machine are now there, in other words, a new universe is created. So, basically, what he's saying is... When you go forward in time from where you're at, you create a new timeline. So uh, he goes on to say at some point that the differences are pretty negligible, like 1% to 2% of, of uh, changes. So basically, and he's gone on to say that this planet, our, plan, our timeline is different than the timeline he came from. So basically, in this fax, he talks about Y2K actually became a huge problem uh, in his timeline, and it destroyed the power grid, which caused lots of suffering in, in the United States and, and across the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, he said also, he said, when he's talking about 2,500, he said that, uh, he goes, that's one thing that bothered him when, when other time travelers were talking about this, because he says in their time period, they can travel back pretty far, but if they try to travel past 2,564, it stops. So for some reason, in 2564, timeline stops. For whatever reason, we don't know. But uh, he says the government, after the Y2K disaster, uh, keeps power, infrastructure, and martial law. A power facility in Denver is able to restart itself, but is mobbed by hundreds of thousands of people and destroyed. Uh, A year later, the uh, the communal government system is developed. After the Constitution takes a few twists. Uh, China retakes to Taiwan. Israel wins the largest battle for their life. And Russia is covered in nuclear snow from their collapsing reactors. So this is the first fax machine that Art Bell got. Um, Basically, the man's claiming that all this stuff happened in the future. Uh, Okay, sounds like gobbledygook. No no problem. Later in 1998, he says, I guess Art Bell had had an issue where he left and came back. I think I vaguely remember this. I think it, he left for a while and came back because his son was molested uh, by his teacher. Teacher, and huh. he, it was a fucking sad story. Um, but the facts back and said, "I faxed this information to you today before you left the air. I wanted to make sure it wasn't lost in the shuffle, so I'm sending a gift. If you've already seen this, please accept my apologies. If you choose to make this public, please do not." publish the fax number what the hell oh shit what's it doing okay uh please do not fax uh 
Please do not publish fax number. I had to fax when I heard the other time traveler calling in from the recent time pa- time past the year 2500. So he suggested that uh, there was a war between the average citizens and the government in his time period. Uh, then later on, uh, back in like 2001, John Teeter showed up. And this is the first time we actually heard the name John Teeter. Um, he showed up in the coast-to-coast forums that existed back in the day. And he said he had come back in a mission to 1975 to collect a IBM 5100 computer. And he said it had special functions that not a lot of people knew about. And he needed it for a mission. And so basically he was able to go back to 1975, collect this item, and then he came to 2000 because he wanted to collect some personal artifacts from his family that he ended up losing uh, during the war in America after the grid collapsed and the government uh, overthrow happened, or the uh-huh. government uh, war happened. So he wanted to collect these items so he would have them because they were destroyed in this did war. That, um, uh, oh, man, what was that story that I did, Sean, about the uh, uh, time traveler in England that uh, the guy bought a cottage in the 80s and he was using the IBM, whatever that computer Rob just said, and uh, he started getting these notes from uh, um, these uh, entities from the future, and they opened up a time portal uh, between 1980 and like 1551 in England. Oh, that heard that on Mysterious Universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's the same computer that uh, that's in your. I don't. I don't know if it is because it. When you hear that, when you hear the reason why he wanted the computer, it's it's a way different reason, and it's it and it's it's odd hmm. uh, that it's this specific, but. Um, he John Teeter predicted that there would be a war in Iraq in 2003, which basically did happen. Um, but he he did make, get a lot of predictions wrong. He said that you know Y2K would wipe everything out. However, people bring up the point: we were actually the only reason why Y2K didn't happen is because we were prepared for it. And it's a possibility that John Teeter maybe pushed that information along. I don't know if any of that's true. But in my mind, it could be feasible if you got somebody that says it from the future, and hey, you need to pay attention to this Y2K thing because we don't know how bad it wouldn't have been if we didn't have all the programs out there fixing our computers and, and such. Because it was, we worked on that for like two years before the year 2000 hit. Um, so, <clears throat> but when it comes back to the computer, it turns out that in 2004, now this is four years later after John Teeter made this announcement about the IBM computer, that uh, it had a secret function only revealed in August of 2004. Now, this computer was built... In, remember, he got this computer in 1975, so this is old as shit computer, and if you've seen pictures of it, it's basically a briefcase-sized computer that had its own little screen on it, and, you know, you got to think, this is, this is it was the closest thing to a personal computer that we had in the, in the year that it was created. Right. Uh, he said the functions, the reason why he, he said this thing had special functions, and the f- special function was that it allowed the machine to emulate programs in older languages used by IBM mainframes. And by, but the company kept this under wraps in case it was abused by the competition. But in, t- in 2001, Teeter wrote, You mean other than the mad cow pandemic, the breakthrough in high energy physics, and the unknown functions of the 5100? Uh, so basically what they're saying is he said that he came back here because they had an issue with Unix code 
2038, all the computers again were going to crash because of a Unix code error. Similar to Y2K. And this is actually something we know about right now. So, uh, so it's, not, it's not been a big secret. So basically, uh, in layman's terms, the U- Unix runs on 32-bit integers. And we, keep try- we don't keep track of computer time by months and days. We actually keep track of it by seconds. So eventually, um, at, in the year 2038, I think it's in December on a certain time, we run out of time. And after that, everything will crash like Y2K. Oh, wow. So basically, uh, that's why he said they need to come back to this computer because it could actually emulate old code so they can go back in and fix codes to keep the things from happening. So that was the secret function of this computer, and it's oddly specific that he goes back in time to get this one brand of computer, and it's for that exact reason, and then we find out about, hey, that's legit, that's something that was actually built in this computer, but we wouldn't bring it up because we were afraid our competition would be upset that it could do this for, you know. So um, he also predicted the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster uh-huh. uh, in 2003, so he... And he basically kept his time machine, when people asked about it, he said he had it built in, I believe, in 1968 Camaro. So he had this time machine, and he describes yeah. it, it did some weird, I don't even understand what what makes sinusoids and everything like that. <laughs> so it sounds like, a, it sounds like an interesting story, and eventually he claimed that he had to leave in 2001, and he was never heard from again. So you're thinking, hey, this time traveler came, gave some information out. He got a lot of stuff wrong. He said there would be a civil war in the United States in 2006. Uh, although I would, I would say that uh, maybe in our time frame, he, maybe that's getting postponed because honestly, since Donald Trump is president, I, I, I see the start of a civil war happening, mm-hmm. and it's it's really it's really odd. I'm not being that. I'm not saying it to be facetious, but you do have these this whole political spectrum where. People hate each other. Like fifty percent of the population seems to hate the other fifty percent, and it's it's escalated more than you'd think. It's just crazy. Uh, Yeah, I I mean, he said it would fall along government lines, but to him, it was the the poor people fighting the government because they were starving and everything else. So apparently, the the Y two K thing really did a number on the United States that didn't recover for a long time in his timeline. So he was able to go back to his timeline with the computer and hopefully saved it. However, in our timeline, it, according to the way his, his physics and everything work, we didn't even exist until they created our timeline by coming here. So it's like the mini-worlds theory again. So we live in an offshoot of John Teeter's timeline where our lives don't matter. So if anything gets fucked up here, he wasn't responsible for it. So it's, a, it's an odd story, but... In 2009, a private investigator got involved, and uh, there was a there was a uh, it, there was some place called the John Teeter Institute. Basically, a a man named Larry Haber was a Florida lawyer, and he was the runner of the John Teeter uh, Institute. And he said that he actually had John Teeter had come to him and told him his story, and he wanted to write a book about it to warn the people of the world about what was going to happen. If they didn't change their ways and such like that, uh, and this man was an entertainment lawyer, and he started writing up the the book uh, and such and telling his story. 
Uh, he said that he got in contact with John Teeter's family from this time period because John Teeter is supposedly alive in 2000 and whenever, when this all this was going down, 2003. John Teeter, the child, was alive. And John Teeter, the time-traveling adult, actually went to go meet himself and talk to himself and talk to his mother. Doesn't that, like, kill you if you meet yourself? Well, I mean, we don't know how time travel really works. I mean, let's be honest. Time travel, as we know it, is all based on books and novels and stuff that have been written. I mean... Yeah, I mean, Dr. Stephen Hawking says it's, you know, a yeah. bunch of shit. So, so, he says he went back to talk to himself as a younger kid. And, you know, like I said, he went to the government... Or he went to his... I'm sorry. He went to his... In 2001 to see... Or 2000 to see his family to gather items to take to the future because they were destroyed in the past. So, I mean... There tells you that he probably went to see himself during that time period as well, and set up his his institute to uh, to basically keep his name out there. Uh, the thing is, though, the private investigator in two thousand nine started looking at this guy, and he learned that Larry Harbor had a brother, and his brother was a computer scientist named John Rick Haber, and. He's probably the man that's most likely behind this legend. Being a computer scientist, he probably would have known about the IBM 5100's programming abilities and maybe started this story off knowing that in the in a few years they were going to release this information about the IBM uh, because copyright laws and such, as they are, would keep them from any kind of litigation. So they believe that this is all a hoax perpetrated by Larry Harbour to make money. Uh, and there has been talk about John Teeter movies and such as that. So, I mean, it's who's to say? I, I, I kind of believe it's probably all a hoax, but it still, does, still makes a very interesting story, if you ask me. Yeah, it's, it's intriguing. While you were talking about that, I was looking it up. There's kind of like a, an epilogue, I guess, back in 2012 in September. Um, an article I found says... Part of the John Teeter story involved Teeter leaving behind a series of videos of his final departure. Did you get that far in your story reading? I did not see anybody talk about that. Okay. It says, allegedly, he gave a copy of the video of his final departure message, um, we're assuming it's on VHS tape, to his family in modern time. Teeter also promised, after some time, that his family would pass the video on to a woman named Pamela, despite the unwanted attention it would cause, uh, potentially for her and his family. They'd come around to the idea, he told Pamela, but she would need to be patient. So apparently he had... Did you ever get to somebody named Pamela? Mm-mm. Okay, so maybe he had like a modern-day uh, confidant. Um, in a quote, it says here from John, I had said I would be willing to videotape my departure. There are a few technical and logistical problems, but I do plan to have it done, i.e. the videotape recording has static and interference um, by getting too close to the unit. At this point, the videotape would be for a pure entertainment value. I won't it, It won't prove one way or the other if I'm a time traveler or not, but I feel you deserve just a tad of bread and circuses. John Teeter, March 14, 2001. Um, as far as this writer says, John Teeter's footage never made it, if it ever existed at all. Of course, there are rumors cropping up. Well, I'm watching a video right now. Yeah, I was going to okay. say... Um, Supposedly. Uh, there's a farewell video floating around on the internet, obviously. Um, they can't tell if it's really true or not. But, I don't know, that kind of makes the rabbit hole go a little bit deeper. 
Yeah. I just watched the video. It looks like green screen trickery, but it also looks like it's very old. So I don't know how much Photoshop technology would have been around that way or if we could even produce a date on that. But it looks it looks old-timey, but we know what we can do with right it's such and such nowadays yeah that's that's very true that's very true. we could have we could have real lifetime travelers but i don't know it sounds kind of like just some guy with too much time on his hands wants to rewrite the script to back to the future or it sounds like larry harbour the entertainment lawyer found a way to make some money yeah that's true too we should buy his book i've thought about it but then again <laughs> yeah we don't want to give that clown any more money did he ever He's actually done interviews on Coast to Coast, and John Teeter supposedly has given interviews as well on Coast to Coast. Really? I did a quick uh, search and couldn't find any modern-day John Teeters to really speak of. No, John Teeter disappeared in 2001, and no one's heard from him since. Okay, yeah. That's... I also brought that up. No, I'm just saying, like, there's nothing since 2001. I thought yeah. I thought maybe being, like, 16 years later, we'd have somebody uh, pop up. Well, what I'm saying is John Teeter probably isn't his real name, so... Ah, okay. Yeah, an alias. I think, it was an, I think that was his name. He didn't say... He didn't tell his his child... The, the child that was him his name, and he lived in Florida, is all he would say. Oh, so okay. He, he could be anybody in Florida. I don't know. It's it's pretty fascinating. We have, we've heard all sorts of stories about time slips. Uh, the most famous one that I can always think of off the cuff is that stupid guy that took his dog out for a walk in the desert, fell and hit his head, and woke up with a fucking Beatles mixtape. <laughs> That's my favorite time travel story. Yeah. Well, I don't really have a good segue into our next segment from time travel. You did a pretty good job from going robots to time travel, but I ain't got shit. So let's let's move on. Let's move on to my topic, and that is, as I mentioned before, a potential serial killer in the movie The Exorcist. Have you guys read or heard anything about this at all? Nope. No. Okay, awesome. So, Stephen from Oh Indeed, our, our brethren, turned me on to this oh, a couple months dude. ago, and I just kind of put it on the back burner for a, such an occasion like tonight when I really had nothing else to talk about. Um, the title of this says, did you know there's a serial killer in The Exorcist movie? And I didn't know a whole lot about this. I thought I knew a lot about horror movies, but apparently this one slipped under my radar. But basically, you guys know the Exorcist movie completely from front yeah. to back. A girl gets possessed by the devil. A priest comes in, tries to exorcise the demon, blah, blah, blah. But what they're saying here now is Linda Blair was actually in the presence of a true evil while filming William Firkins, <laughs> William Friedkin's classic, The Exorcist. So this takes place about three years after the Exorcist movie was released, and it happened in New York. Um, it was during the late 70s, and there was a rash of six different men who had been killed and dismembered. Their bodies had been placed into trash bags and tossed into the Hudson River, just like bags of trash. Uh, kind of similar to Dexter, the way he got rid of his victim. Spoiler alert. Due to the condition of the bodies, police were never able to identify the victims. However, upon investigating the men's clothing and identifying tattoos, authorities were determined that the men who were murdered were homosexual. The way they determined this supposedly was um, identifying tattoos and clothing that were linked back to um, a, a shop in Greenwich, I believe. Uh, that maybe catered towards homosexual men at the time. Apparently, the fashion that all all six men were uh, were tossed into the river um, all linked back to that uh, that clothing store. So 
It says, due to the condition of the bodies, again, it wasn't able to be identified where they were from or who they were, but they did link them back to popular gay clubs as well. It wasn't until the body of film critic Addison Verrill was discovered, beaten and stabbed to death inside his New York apartment, that police had a new lead in this case. The murderer was a man named Paul Bateson, a 30-something-year-old x-ray technician who met Addison at a nightclub on September 14, 1977. So let's give you a quick little backstory here. When filming The Exorcist, there is a couple key scenes that happen in a hospital. And the director wanted to keep things as real as he could. So what he did is instead of hiring actors, he actually hired um, professional medical staff in a hospital, rehearsed the scenes a couple couple times, and then filmed. So basically what you're seeing there are actual doctors and, and lab techs and everything else. Um Batson Bateson can be seen in the scene where um, Reagan is having a CAT scan or MRI. Yeah, he's she's having like an MRI or an angiography or something to determine if she had to determine if she had any kind of brain damage. Um, the scene is scary enough on its own, but now when you go back and rewatch this and you find out the guy at the bottom of her bed was actually a murderer, uh, it may add a whole nother, uh so the layer to the story. The uh, needle in her neck and says it's going to hurt a little bit. Don't worry. I don't know if it's him or not, but basically he's he's the guy that has a short haircut. I think he's the doctor's assistant or like the, mm. the x-ray tech in the movie as well. But um, yeah, basically Bateson confesses at some point to going home with Veril on that fateful evening, having sex with him, bashing his skull in with a metal skillet, and then stabbing him to death. Uh, Bateson ransacked Veril's apartment, stole a credit card and some cash, and then left the writer to die um, in the nude in his apartment. The way it all comes together is that while he's awaiting a sentencing in Rikers Island prison, um, he allegedly brags about his crimes and says that he's responsible for that plus many others. He explains how he picks up countless men at bars, kills them, chops them up, and then throws them in the Hudson River just for fun. Um, The case makes the news, and then the director actually recognizes the killer's face and helps the police identify that, yes, indeed, that, uh, that may have been the killer. Preston, to answer your question... The director filmed the scene at the New York University Medical School with real neurosurgeons and neuropsychiatric surgeons um, on the acting team. Bateson was a surgeon's assistant who helped prepare the little girl for her procedure. And then it goes on here to basically say that uh, the director of the movie re-interviews Bateson after he uh, is imprisoned and asked if he did kill all the men. And Bateson, um, who was a raging alcoholic, could only remember killing Veril because the nights he spent at the clubs, he was too drunk to really remember what happened. Hmm. Yeah, fucking weird. Um, Sounds like a swell guy. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, they actually did prove that he was in the movie and he did these murders? Yeah, um, he's in the movie. If you watch the movie, there's actually a screenshot of him here if you want to see it right there. Oh, yeah. That's okay. the guy at the... F- yeah, damn, he even looks like a killer. Um, it says here that... Yeah, that was just that was his MO of hating himself and taking it out on the poor victims. He would go to the clubs. Um he couldn't admit that he was himself homosexual. He would go uh, pick up guys, have sex with them or just pick them up and then beat them, um dismember them and throw them off into the river. Just like I said, kind of like a, a 1970s version of Dexter. Although Bateson is widely believed to be responsible for the unidentified bodies that washed up on the Hudson River, there is no solid evidence ever linking him permanently to those other crimes as well. Even though he brutally murdered another man in cold blood, he now walks free on the streets of New York today. What? Um, 
I found varying reports here saying that some people said he's still in prison and incarcerated today. Other people said he did 25 years and he got out in 2004. Still, they let him out. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, that's creepy, man. man. Well, Preston, why don't you brighten the mood a little bit after that somber story uh, and, and just kind of jump into it, man. So, this all started because Sean had said, you know, last show, when at the end, when we talk about, you know, are you guys watching anything? And I was like, yeah, no. He's like, you should watch The Keepers. So, the, you know, last weekend, I decided that Jeffrey and I were going to binge watch The Keepers. And uh, because of the lack thereof of Keeper-style documentaries on Netflix... Uh, when we got done binge watching it, we were so enthralled. We're like, we got to watch something else. Well, what else does Netflix have? Uh, we've already watched Making a Murder. So if you've watched those two, just give your hopes up now because Netflix has nothing else good on when it comes to those style of documentaries on there. So we couldn't find anything, and she decides she's going to bed, and I'm still like, fuck it, I'm going to search. And I stumbled across Bigfoot. Yep, just Bigfoot. Plain, simple, <laughs> to the point. Not short, finding, sweet, to the point. Yeah, not finding Bigfoot, not you know, whatever. Just plain old Bigfoot. Now, this documentary follows wildlife cameraman John Waters, who's British, and this is important because of a phone call uh, during a television show, which we'll get to here in a minute. And uh, it follows him on his journey to find this elusive creature. And I have to say that this documentary is bad. It's like. 45 minutes of complete shit. So, don't watch it. Okay? But I'm going to give you some of the highlights because that's what we do. So, for one, uh, when he shows up to a town in Washington, um, he's on the local radio show, and they basically broadcast that the, they have this wildlife cameraman, he's trying to find Bigfoot, and they'd ask you know, listeners to call in with stories to help his research. And this guy calls in and point blank says... What the hell? What does some English-speaking twat think he can find Bigfoot over us Yanks? He thinks we's too stupid to do it? And everybody's just kind of like, uh... So he really didn't get any leads. Um, And in the next scene, uh, we see a long-haired hippie dude with a drum set in the middle of the woods. Pixelated Paranormal presents... Tips to finding or capturing a Bigfoot. Tip number one on capturing a Bigfoot. If you want to make some noise and find yourself a Bigfoot, don't bash a stick against a tree. That's not how we properly capture a Bigfoot's attention. What you really need to do, Ringo Starr, is get yourself a drum set and bash your heart out. Tip, tip, tappy. Tip, tip, tappy. That's the sound Bigfoot likes to hear. Tip number two. Drum not working? That's okay. There's more than one way to get Bigfoot's attention. We here at Pixelated Paranormal recommend using an orange stocking cap. Bigfoot likes orange. That's the sign of a hunter. A true outdoorsman. Bigfoot can spot orange from a mile away. He'll say, there's a classy man, a classy gent that I'd like to get to know. Look at that orange stocking cap. That's how you get Bigfoot's attention. Tip number three. See, Bigfoot's a lot like Blair Witch. He's going to leave you a little surprise in the morning. And 
that's okay. We're not talking about Bigfoot droppings, no. What we're talking about here, folks, are a little twig, a little branch, the little Native American way of saying, hello, it's alright to be in my neck of the woods. I'm Bigfoot. I'm glad you're here. Tip number four. Well, if all that hasn't worked, I'm sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. Just stand there. Maybe it will happen. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But what I can tell you, one little final piece of advice, Bigfoot loves chicken and peanut butter. Chicken and peanut butter. It's a great combination. It's a winning combination. So put those two things together. Go out there, folks. Put some peanut butter on a chicken and say, Here you go, Bigfoot. Here's a snack. Love you, fella. Now, after all that, the important part or the couple of things I could take away from this, um, and we kind of talked on this on the game chat the other night about the Patterson film. So they kept going back to the Patterson film. There was something about it that um, he couldn't just quite put a, put his finger on, so to speak. He, um, you know, he said, if this is a fake, then being in the film industry, I should be able to fake it just as well. So they hired somebody to make a really good-looking Bigfoot suit, um, put a guy um, in the woods, and try to film it. And no matter how far away he was from this this creature, he could not get it to match the the quality of the video of the Patterson film. Like you could tell that his was an obvious fake versus Patterson. So it kind of left it into question: Was Patterson's film really faked? The other thing that they brought up that in this Patterson film, you can see Bigfoot's big old titties swing back and forth as she is walking, and so that's something else that we, we talk about that that's that's hard to fake. So the way that her breasts are swinging in the air as she's walking, and the way that she walks, it's uh, very hard to fake that in a suit. And you're talking so about the original, the original Patterson, Patterson Gimli. Like yep. the original Bigfoot video, yep. you can you can see breasts swaying in that see, video. Yes, you can see breasts. They actually did like a zoom in, and you can see these big hairy titties give a little flip flop back and forth. Okay, that's so offensive. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't. I'm going to argue with you, not to throw off your uh, your momentum here, but I don't think you can see definitive breasts in that video. You can see just the outline of a, a body. You don't, want, you don't want go watch Bigfoot. Just plain Bigfoot. Go watch it. Okay. <laughs> not doing that so now the other thing that stood out was uh the guy that was playing the drums out in the forest um he kind of put together like a uh, like a like a little research thing that uh, he found that the largest group of sightings from washington california are in towns or, or counties that kept the native american names from that region so, like, when you go to, like, Saskatchewan County or whatever, like, those have more Bigfoot sightings than, you know, Harper County does or Bob County does. Um, and so there was something about when they went to name all these towns, these cities, these, these counties, that something about those areas, he naturally found, like, a, a bigger cluster of uh, Bigfoot sightings. So I decided, well, let's look up and uh, see what uh, Native American, you know, take on Bigfoot is. So Ray Owen, who's a son of a Dakota spiritual leader from Prairie Island Reservation in Minnesota, told a reporter that they exist in another dimension from us, but they can appear in this dimension whenever they have reason to. See, it's like there are many levels, many dimensions. When our time in this one is finished, we move on to the next one. But the big man or Bigfoot can go between. 
The big man comes from God. He's our big brother and like the husband of Mother Earth. He kind of looks out uh, for us. Two years ago, we were going downhill. We were really self-destructive. We need a sign to put us back on track, and that's why Big Man appeared. Ralph Greywolf, a visiting um, Indian from Alaska, told the reporter, In our way of beliefs, they make appearance at troubled times to help us uh, to help troubled Indians, uh, to help troubled Indian communities. We get more in tune with Mother Earth. Bigfoot brings signs uh, or messages that there is a need to change, a need to cleanse. So for Native Americans, they, they always thought Bigfoot as uh, just like a, you know, a spiritual creature who could uh, you know, hop here and there. And that could kind of explain some of the reports that we see uh, in other tales of Bigfoot where hunters are like, well, he was there and then all of a sudden he's gone. You know, some other people think that right. it's because he's part alien or something and the greys are abducting him. But uh, a lot of Native Americans say, no, he's a spiritual being, spiritual creature <laughs> of love. <laughs> and uh, I have some uh, r- good listener, not listener stories, but good stories from uh, people who live in the area in Washington. And that's what we're going to leave you with on uh, Old Bigfoot. From Issaquah, Washington State, 1982 at Squawk Mountain. My dad and I went grouse hunting one fall day in the afternoon. We had walked a few miles inward using an old mining route. The day was very clear out and the sun was casting a nice warm glow on the forest floor. Visibility was 100%. We didn't see any sign of grouse so we decided to get off the trail and use a well used game trail that was very narrow but easy to walk on. We proceeded on this trail for well over a mile when the trail began to go downhill into a very dark gully between two mountains. It was progressively getting darker as we proceeded to move downhill and it seemed to have an ominous feeling to it. I barely took notice that there was a long wall of dirt that was about six feet high and seemed to parallel the game trail that we walked on. Suddenly we both heard heavy footsteps coming up from behind us, moving in the direction that we were walking. As the sound of the footsteps grew louder, we noticed it wasn't walking directly behind us, but just on the other side of the dirt. The sound was very heavy and clearly bipedal as the debris on the forest floor crunched beneath every footstep. We both quickly squatted down and waited for whatever it was to go by or possibly come at us over the dirt mound. My dad readied his shotgun and whispered, I I think it's a bear. But it was then we both noticed whatever it was that was walking was also breaking very high branches at the bottom of the trees which were at least seven to eight feet off the ground. Whatever it was was tall enough to brush against the bottom of those branches. Suddenly, when the creature was only a few feet from us, on the other side of the dirt mound, it stopped. We didn't move a muscle. I was holding my breath, trying to listen, not to be noticed, but the creature was standing totally still, and we could hear it sniffing the air. It knew we were there, but wasn't sure exactly where we were. Then it began to slowly walk down into the gully again, but hooked around the bat and up this time on the game trail. Suddenly, we saw it emerge from the trees only 30 yards ahead of us. It was looking around slowly scanning, and then it spotted us. But it seemed as surprised as we were. Its mouth was open, and it had the surprised look on its face. 
I was so scared. I remembered I could not feel my legs, and my body had so much adrenaline running through it that my mouth was tingling, it was dry, and my tongue was numb. I could just not believe what we were seeing. It, it stood there looking at us like he was in disbelief. I remember looking at this, this thing, every detail being in awe of the massive size and muscular build of this creature. It, it made the Patterson Bigfoot look like a couch potato, as this creature was incredibly well built. Every muscle was defined and overly developed, just like a bodybuilder. Even with its immense size, it had this powerfully fast look to it, like it was built to burst into a sprint, and it did not look slow at all. If he wanted to, he could have easily grabbed us. After about three to five minutes of staring at each other, he slowly backed up, not taking his eyes off us until it disappeared into the woods. Not saying anything, my, my dad mentioned for me to get back and get back up and we'll, we'll walk back. We, we both quickly walked back up the hills as fast as we could. We, we never said one word as we walked back to the truck. In fact, once in the truck and on the road, we never said anything at all. It was like we were both in shock and what we had seen. Forest manager David Mills reported seeing a creature in late June of 2000 in Susquehannock, Washington. The Susquehannock police told him there had been several similar reports during this time frame. As a forestry manager with the Susquehannock Indian tribe, Mills knows his way around the woods, so he is positive that what he saw was a Sasquatch, a large, mysterious ape-like creature, also known as Bigfoot. He was checking out some young trees and kept hearing a noise in the woods, but when he would turn, he wouldn't see anything. Then, the hair on his neck stood up. I watched this, this hairy thing on two legs. It used its left arm to lift up a branch and walked about 50 feet. He turned in my direction and saw that I was watching him, and then it ducked behind a tree. Mills snuck into the tree line and moved closer to the creature. It started screeching and pounding on the back of a tree with what sounded like a rock. He kept trying to get closer, but old Squatchy would make a ruckus every time he took a few steps forward. Then, Mills heard the woofing and jaw smacking, and he recognized that as the sound of a bear to his left. As he moved, he realized he'd come within six meters of its cub. The mother bear came out of the brush, but she ignored Mills, which was an odd move for a protective bear. Her anger wasn't directed at me. It was to the right at the noises that Squanchy was making behind the tree. With two bears and a Sasquatch nearby, Mills decided to get the hell out of Dodge. I flew down the hill. I just humped in my truck, locked up the gate, and left the area. Mills says the creature was nearly three meters tall and had a black, shiny fur all over its body. The screeching sounds it made matched those he had heard of a recorded Sasquatch years ago on the Lumi Indian Reservation near Billingham. Mills also says it looked like another Sasquatch he saw while working in the Olympics for the National Forest Service in 1995. 
It was nailing by a creek when he and another worker came upon it, and it took one look at them and disappeared in just two steps. He sees bears back in the woods. He knows the difference between bears and Bigfoot. Plus, there was a partial footprint in the muddy patch where Mills said he saw the creature. The track was 18 centimeters wide, which would make the footprint 20 centimeters long. And that's it. All right. Well, there you go. Interesting. And I know Rob, you know, Rob, when he when we talked about it, Rob had said, you know, the, the film is really grainy. And, uh, you know, I would agree with that. You know, the quality of the film is too grainy to really see any detail like that. But you have somebody who's a, a big Bigfoot enthusiast, somebody who believes in this. You know, they're, they're going to try to point blank, just point it out and, you know, get it everything they can to, to get you to believe in this. And mm-hmm. so I think they caught up uh, the the uh, director of this film into thinking that that's what he could see. Yeah, but, I mean, people also want to see Jesus and toast. And if you want to see something bad enough, you'll see it. Yeah. I don't know. I I don't think that there are female breasts in that video at all. Rob, your thoughts? I I, I told you my thoughts before. I don't believe any of this because, I've like I said, that video is so grainy. That video is so grainy that you can't see any detail in it. You can barely see Bigfoot. And maybe that's one reason why his um, his film that he made with the, the with the Bigfoot suit looked very fake, because the quality of the camera equipment that we have now it makes it easier to spot those things. Whereas when the the uh, Patterson film was filmed, you know the quality of the cameras weren't that great, and so it it made it seem, you know, like we were actually filming this elusive creature. But definitely, listeners, whatever you do, don't waste your time with that documentary on Netflix. <laughs> Lesson learned. <laughs> Lesson learned. Okay. Check out My Sex Robot instead. That one is way better. I'm looking up the footage right now, and I don't think it's a female. You don't see her goods swaying in the wind, huh? <laughs> so, okay. A... You can see two masses on the front of the Bigfoot figure. Mm-hmm. B, they in no way, shape, or form are swinging or swaying or bouncing or anything else. They could, they could very well be mm-hmm. just enlarged chest muscles, pectoral muscles, Preston. Correct. They are not big old swinging breastuses by I, any means. I never, I never said that I believed in the big old swinging breast, okay? I was just pointing out that, You said uh, you can see some big old swinging titties, and I quote. That's what they try to make you believe in the film, you know? I don't they think in the documentary some, they, they use the terminology some, big old swinging titties. They draw some circles around it, and they're like, look oh, here. Preston, <laughs> Rob, you heard it here first. They drew some circles around them. <laughs> so... All right. Case closed, guys. (laughs) As we know in YouTube videos, anytime you draw a circle around it, see it's it's right there. Let me draw the circle on the screen. Do you see it right there where the circle is? Yeah, Uh you. uh So I watched. I just watched the video, and it's a little more clearly defined than I remember. But I'm not. There's nothing there that says a it's a woman or b it's a man, male or female, and they're definitely pressed, and they're not swinging. Well, you called the people of the Bigfoot 
documentary, and you let them know. What I'm going to do is call off the angry people with pitchforks and torches that are going to bang down your door because you called them big old titties. (laughs) Jeez Louise. Mm. Guys, I say we plug stuff and get out of here. What's everybody think about that? Well, as always, listen to O-Indeed, our sister podcast or brother podcast by uh, Brady and Big Steven. Uh, it's a good show. So make sure you get on iTunes, download it, check it out. And don't forget Pixelated Radio with me, Mark, Corey, and Rich. We actually had a full crew on our last episode. So that was a thing. Well, at least for 20 minutes, so Corey had to go work on his roof. <laughs> you know, we moved this show, Corey, to the weekend that you had off from the weekend that I had to work, you know. So, yeah. Then you can't even show up. Builder Bob. And also, Mark's podcast, Pixelated Sausage Cast, where he talks about anime and more anime. And occasionally video games, but goddamn so much anime. And Rich's podcast where he talks about sports cars more sports cars even more sports cars and occasionally sports cars and how to unleash them and that's called sports car unleashed (laughs) oh good stuff well all right guys so next time we get back together we're going to be talking about missing 411 a little bit Uh, the new documentary just dropped there are plenty of fantastic stories to uh to get into as well about this disappearances so All right, guys. Well, with all that being said, thanks for uh, tuning in. Thanks for listening to us. And we will catch you all next time around. Later. Laters. The cast that Pixelated Paranormal would like to thank you for listening to this week's episode. Pixelated Paranormal is here to tell you tales of the fantastical, the strange, the unknown. Tales that will move you a little further down the paranormal highway. If you'd like to share your own listener story, we would love to hear it. You have two ways. One, email us at pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. Again, that's pixelatedparanormal at gmail.com. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we have that set up too. Dial us at 707-523-4263. Again, that's 707-523-4263. We'd really love to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to this week's episode of Pixelated Paranormal, your guide to the unusual and the strange. When you make it moisty, you make it rain. (laughs) Rain fungus. You are fake news. Oh, you're right.